Let's, uh, let's pray as we prepare to look into God's Word together. Father, you are a, uh, a wonderful shepherd who leads us. In your way, in your timing, we don't always understand your plan, your purpose. But we thank you that you do have a plan. And we can trust that your plan is good. It is the best. It is the working out of your purposes. Lord, quiet our hearts before you now as we look into your word. Teach us. Mold us. Change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I love the anticipation of Christmas. Having four small children, the excitement about Christmas coming and the joy of looking forward to the presents. I remember as a child, we always pressured our parents so much that they would sometimes let us open a present a day or two early just, just to try to keep us from going crazy from the anticipation. Well, as I think about what's happening as the year 2000 approaches, there is a growing anticipation about the turning of the millennium. What will happen? What's coming? And for Christians, there's somehow this sense of, gee, maybe this is when Christ will return. I'm sorry if you, are, if you planned on booking the Space Needle for uh, New Year's Eve, 1999. Um, it's too late. It's already booked. Also, most of the cruises are already booked that will be at the international dateline so they can be the first people to see the new millennium begin. And uh, there's an excitement, a building, and a hysteria, I think, will grow. You will hear more and more about Christ will return on this date, at this time. This will happen. This will be the time, finally, in a growing anticipation that this might be the time. There always are times like that at a major turning point, a major event in history, a wondering, a sense of, gee, could this be the time? What's sort of humorous to me is Scholars have proven that Christ was actually born in 4 B.C. The, our calendar is a little off from when he was actually born. So the second millennium has already happened. It was last year. <laughs> we missed it. <laughs> but that won't stop the hysteria, I don't think. So the question is for us as believers, how should we view this? What do we need to know about Christ's second coming? What do we need to know about this present age in which we live? The scriptures call this the last days from Christ's first coming till his second coming. It's, it's the last days. We're in the end times. What do we need to know about the time in which we live? What should we expect life to be like in this period in which we live? Well, Jesus answers all this as he teaches his disciples in Luke chapter 21. So if you haven't already, please turn with me there. We will spend two weeks on this passage, Luke 21, verses 5 through 38. Today we'll cover through verse 24, and next week we'll focus more specifically on the second coming. But this week we want to look at what is life to be like for us during the last days, the time in which we live. And let's look at the setting, starting in verse 5, and I'll read through verse 7, Luke 21. And while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Jesus said, As for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. 
And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus is in the last few days before going to the cross. He knows what's ahead. And so he uses this opportunity as the disciples ask him a question about this beautiful temple to teach them about what's coming, what to expect in the years ahead. And this can be very helpful, I think, for us as we too think about what our lives are made up of in this age and as we look forward to Jesus' coming back. Now, they look up at the temple. Jesus has been teaching. They're in the temple area. The parallel passages say they're on the, the Mount of Olives looking down on the temple. When you sit on the Mount of Olives, you're looking down and you can, he could have seen the beautiful temple displayed all there. And the disciples point it out and they say, isn't it beautiful, Jesus? Look at the beauty of it. And they were pointing out the votive gifts. Now, what are votive gifts? Well, they were gifts that were given when people would make a vow to God and they would fulfill that vow in celebration of that, they would give a gift. Sometimes it was a garland or a grape cluster, maybe some gold. And so they're looking at this, and I think the sense of the, the disciples here is, Jesus, isn't this impressive? This is the center of our worship. This is the picture of God's presence among us. And it's a picture of our dedication to God. Look at how wonderful it is, Jesus. Isn't this marvelous? This is proof that God is with us. This temple, our commitment to it. It truly was an impressive building, by the way. It was built by King Herod. At this point, he'd been working on it for some 50 years. He would continue, well, he was dead, but his family would continue working on it for a number of years after that. But by Jesus' day, it was an incredibly gorgeous building. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says this about it. The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which, when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. It was beautiful. It was immense. And it was a picture of their dedication to God, their commitment to the Lord. It was a monument to their religious life there in Israel. And yet earlier, Jesus had said, Matthew twelve six. One greater than the temple is here. You see, they were impressed by what they had built, by the beauty of it, by their commitment to God, by this sign of God's presence. But see, Jesus was standing there, and he was greater than the temple. He was God himself in their presence. They didn't need a building. They had God himself standing among them. And so Jesus would no longer allow the temple to be the center of their religious life. Because he wanted to be the center of their religious life. So he says in verse 6, you know what's all this you're looking at? It will be utterly destroyed. There will not be one stone left upon another. Now this must have been pretty shocking for the, uh, for the disciples. You're kidding. 
You're going to destroy the very thing that proves that God is with us? The center of our lives? How can this be? So they say, well, um, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign? Why do they ask those questions? I think it's because they wanted to be prepared. Hey, if this is coming, I want to know when it's coming so I can be ready. I want to know what the sign is so I can see when it's just about here so I can be prepared if this awful thing is going to be happening. We're like that, aren't we? We want to be prepared. We'd like to know what's coming. That's part of our fascination in our culture with psychics and horoscopes and whatever, trying to figure out what's coming. We want to know. We want to be prepared. We don't want to be caught off guard. We hate the sense of being unprepared or out of control. We want control in our lives. We want to know the future. And Jesus does actually give them a sign down in verse 20, and we'll get there eventually, what to look for when this temple is about to be destroyed. But he says, what I really want to give you is not preparation for when that's going to happen, but I want to give you preparation for how to live in the years to come. I want to tell you what to expect, not specifically, not exactly when things are going to happen, but I want you to know in general what's coming so you will continue to live for me. And so in the verses that follow, he gives them four characteristics of the last days in which we live. And he says, these are the four things you can expect to happen throughout your lives and in the lives of the generations to come until I come again. So let's look at these four characteristics of the last days, which are descriptive of the days in which we live today. First characteristic he gives in verse 8, and he said, rather than directly answering their question right away, he said, see to it that you be not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not Go after them. First characteristic, he said, of what, you, what life will be like in the last days is there will be false messiahs. There will be people who will come along and say, this is it. This is the messiah. He's the one who's come. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the guy. Or notice, he says, they'll say, I am he or the time is at hand. This is the time. This is the person you should follow. This is really the Messiah or a Messiah-like figure. Or this is the time that he's coming back. Jesus says, false messiahs will say those kinds of things. Don't be misled. But you know, it's been true throughout history ever since then. In 132 AD, there was a false messiah, Simon bar Kosiba. He got quite a following among the Jews. They started a revolt against the Romans and were utterly destroyed. Since then, throughout history, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, the Rajneesh, gurus of various types, all kinds of people have come throughout history claiming to have either be the Messiah or have a special relationship with God to give you new information about who the Messiah is. This is the truth, they claim. Jesus says, don't believe it. In fact, he goes on to say, listen, when the Messiah comes back, first of all, 
No one knows that day. He says elsewhere, not even himself when he was on earth. He didn't even know the day of his return. Only the Father in heaven. So no one can tell you this is when it's going to happen at the year 2000. No one can tell you that. Don't believe it if they tell you. Jesus says you'll be misled if you try to follow that. And he says, don't believe it if they say they've got some special insight from God, something new that you need besides the scriptures and what Jesus has already given you. A new visitation from heaven of the Messiah in America or anywhere else. No. Because the scriptures say when Jesus returns, you won't be able to miss it. There will be no doubt that he's come. And we'll talk about that more next week. But when he comes, <laughs> you'll know it. Believe me. The angel told the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. Don't worry about it. When he comes back, he'll come back in the same way that you've seen him go. And there will be no doubt about it. So he says, don't be misled. I like that word misled. It's the word, Greek word planao, where we get our word for planet. You know, the ancients studied the skies. And they looked at the skies and they saw that the stars were all fixed. But then they'd have these certain heavenly bodies that would kind of go in these other patterns and didn't follow all the other stars. And so they called them wanderers. Planets was the name they gave them because they don't follow the fixed order of the stars. They wander around. And he says, don't wander around. Don't follow after every little craze or everybody who says they have the answer. This is the answer to your life. This is what will make your life happy. This is the thing that will truly provide everything you need. This is the secret formula to make your life what you want it to be, to be fulfilled. Jesus says, don't be misled. Don't wander off from the fixed pattern. Stay fixed in relationship to Jesus and the Word. Stay fixed in your relationship with Him, and He'll guide you. Don't wander off. Don't wander off. So first, he says, expect false messiahs. Secondly, verses 9 and 10, he says, expect war. <laughs> and when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Or you might put that people group will rise against people group and nation against nation. Kurds against Iraqis. Bosnians against Serbians. People groups against people groups within nations. North against the south. Or nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Clashing. He says, expect wars to happen. They're ongoing all the time. Groyer's Encyclopedia says this, except for a brief respite in the 1920s, the first five decades of the 20th century were the bloodiest and most universally convulsive in human history. As weaponry became more mechanized, warfare intensified. Oh yes, we are evolving as a people, aren't we? <laughs> we're getting better and better and better able to love one another and care for one another, kinder. No, we're not. We can communicate far better. We can pick up a telephone and talk to somebody on the other side of the world. Through email, we can instantaneously communicate anywhere on the globe. Has it helped us love one another better? Has it avoided warfare? No, by some estimates, there's 
at any one time, 30 to 40 major conflicts going on right now at any one time over the world. In our century, we have had Hitler and Stalin, World War I, World War II. We've had the killing fields of Cambodia. We're not getting better and better. Right now, there's six, over 16 million refugees in the world. And from the beginning of time, wars have continued. And Jesus says, expect it. Every time there's a major warfare, people think, this is it. We have more sophisticated weapons. This is the end of the world. Jesus has to be coming back now. Jesus says, no, expect wars. Realize that's not the sign of the end time. It will happen. People are sinful. People do not trust God, and therefore there will be wars and conflicts that will continue. That's not the end. And he says, don't be terrified when you hear of wars. Instead, trust me. Cling to me. Realize that these things don't mean the end is here. Then he says something else you need to expect. Verse 11. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He says expect disasters, natural disasters and others. Expect life to be full of crazy things that are part of life in a fallen world until he comes back. Again, people have been in earthquakes and they've thought, this has to be it. This has to be the end of the age. No, the end of the age will be shown when Jesus returns and we see him descending from heaven. He says there'll be earthquakes. There have been many throughout history. Probably most of you have been through an earthquake of some kind. I've been through a number. In 1556, there was an earthquake in Shaanxi, China. 830,000 people died at once. I think people must have felt it was the end of the world. He says, expect plagues. Bubonic plague killed off half of of the population of Europe in the Middle Ages in the 1400s. He says, expect that. Today, we have the plague of AIDS. It's killed around a million people already. Well over 13 million are infected with HIV in the world right now. It's an epidemic. It's a plague in our world. But Jesus says expect plagues to happen. He says expect famines. We read about famines all the time. They happen yearly throughout the world. Millions die. Maybe the most famous, one of the most famous is the potato blight in Ireland in the 1840s. Million and a half people died in the famine from the potato blight. All throughout history, there have been continual events like these. And Jesus says they don't mark the end of the world. They mark this time in the last days when life is difficult as he continues to expand his church. He said there'll be terrors, things like hurricanes, floods, there was a flood in China in 1931, killed almost 4 million people, one flood. He says there'll be great signs in heaven, things like eclipses and meteors and other things as people have seen an eclipse in the past. Now we understand it better because of our scientific technology and all, but usually throughout history, if people seen an eclipse, they thought this has to be the end of the world. This is it. But the world has gone on. So Jesus says, these are all part of life 
right now. And we all face difficulties and disasters. As I said, nearly or two weeks ago, my mom nearly died. Two days ago, my six-year-old son fell down the stairs and decided to test the banister with his head and got 10 stitches across here. Life's full of disasters and difficulties. And there's part of us that wants to avoid those. But Jesus says, expect them. They're part of life for us now. Then he goes on to say one more thing to expect. Verse 12 through 18, 12 through 19. Let me read those verses. And that's persecution. Persecution. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. He says you can expect persecution as Christians in life. James, one of the apostles that he was talking to at this very time, was put to death in Acts 12 by the Jews. Stephen was put to death. We read about that in Acts 7. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's an incredible book of stories of Christians who were put to death for their faith. Jesus says, expect that. They will put some of you to death. We don't understand that very well in 20th century America because we have religious freedom here. But let me tell you, America in the 20th century is a blip on the screen of history. Throughout history, Christians have been persecuted exactly as Jesus is describing here, being betrayed by their own families, being put to death for their faith. Why is there freedom in America now? I don't know. I don't know. But it's unusual. We have field staff throughout the world. I was just kind of taking mental note, at least six of our field staff work extensively in countries where there is virtually no religious freedom for a Christian, where they have to work secretly behind the scenes. Otherwise, they'll be arrested and probably put to death. Today, most countries in the world today do not allow the freedoms anywhere near that we have in our country. I've did a short-term mission to Pakistan. I have several friends there in Pakistan, Christians, who have to hide. Or if they become Christians, they immediately, no matter what class they began in, it's a class-structured society, they became, become the lowest rung of society immediately. Their families reject them. Their society rejects them. Economically, they're rejected. It costs to be a Christian in most of the world. Jesus says, I want you to know a couple of things about persecution and really about everything he's been talking about, the earthquakes and, and the false Christs, the false messiahs, the warfare that goes on. Notice what he says in verse 13. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. He says, the reason I allow these things to happen in your lives 
The reason I allow difficulty and disaster and struggle and warfare and persecution in your lives is because it's an opportunity for you to bear witness of Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for you to share your faith. And he says he'll give you the words to say at the appropriate time when you need to make testimony for your faith. In the face of persecution, in the face of difficulty, sitting by your mother's or a friend's hospital bed, he'll give you the words to say as you cling to him and depend on him. It's all allowed because it's an opportunity to bear witness of Jesus Christ. So stay close to Jesus. Persecution may be coming for all of us as well. As I said, our freedoms are just a blip on the screen of history. They may not last. Secondly, Jesus wants us to know down in verse 18 and 19, in the face of all of this, the rejection, the hatred, the persecution, even death at times, verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You just said we'll be put to death, and yet not a, head of our, a hair of our head will perish? What do you mean? What do you mean? I think verse 19 explains it. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The word there is soul. You see, ultimately, God will protect us. The picture of him protecting every little hair of our head, to me, is a picture of incredible intimacy, that God knows us that well. He's numbered every hair on our heads. He knows where everyone has gone. Nothing will perish. Nothing will be lost. It's a picture of such care and concern and intimacy. Jesus says, no matter what you go through, trust me, know that I'm with you and I will do what's best for you and I will protect your soul. It can't be lost. He will take care of us. So, he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. He will protect us so we can endure. Cling to him, depend on him, Stay fixed in relation to him. He does his part. We do our part. And our souls will be saved. So he says, don't wander. <laughs> Stay fixed on me. Let me read verses 20 through 24, because now Jesus goes back and says, oh yeah, you wanted to know a sign about when the temple will be destroyed. Let me explain that. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. The sign, when armies start closing into Jerusalem, he tells the disciples, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter the city because these are the days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days for there, there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jesus says the sign is this. When the army starts surrounding Jerusalem, take off for the hills. In A.D. 70, the Romans began to surround Jerusalem. And you know what the Christians did? 
they remembered the words of Jesus. And they said, we're out of here. <laughs> they took off, went across the Jordan River to a city of Pella and stayed there while the Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem and tore down every stone of the temple. The wailing wall that's there today, it's not part of the temple at all. It's part of the foundation way back. Everything else was utterly, completely destroyed. The Christians took Jesus' words to heart and were saved. And he says, Jerusalem will continue to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, there's a number of, of interpretations of this. It's a difficult passage. I understand it to be saying that Jerusalem will continue to be under the control, by and large, of Gentiles, unbelievers, until God is finished bringing the nations to him, finished his task of sharing Christ with all the nations. And you know what's been true for the last 2,000 years? The Jews were forced out. Gentiles have been in control of Jerusalem ever since. Even with Israel as a nation now, they do not control Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the old city, is divided into four quarters. There's the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, and the Armenian quarter. Still not controlled by the Jews or by the Christians, ultimately. God is still bringing people into his kingdom of which we are a part. We started at the beginning of this passage with the disciples admiring the temple, impressed with the religion of the day. Isn't this marvelous? Look what we've done. Look, God's with us. Jesus says, I'm going to destroy that. I wonder if Jesus came today, if we wouldn't say, Jesus, look at this great church building. Look at all these ministries we've got going. Look at how busy I am for you, Lord. Wow, aren't you impressed? I think Jesus would say, you know, it'll all be destroyed. Are you doing what I've asked you to do till I come again? Are you using this as an opportunity to share your faith? To be salt and light in a world of complete darkness? Or are you using life now to make yourselves comfortable? Look at all we've built. Look how wonderful it is. Or are we sharing our faith and using this as an opportunity to trust in Him? to know that He is in control. Therefore, I do not have to try to make heaven on earth. Life is hard. Jesus promised it would be, and therefore, I can trust Him to take care of me. He is coming again. He will protect my soul. Therefore, I can step out to share my faith, even if it means rejection, even if it means my own family rejecting me. We're here not to try to make heaven on earth. We're here to be salt and light so that people will know that the Messiah has come and is coming again. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you told us what to expect. We so easily forget we begin to think, especially for us in 20th century America, that life should go easy. 
that life should be smooth and we become angry and we grumble when life is hard and there's disasters and difficulties and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and all these things. And we, we think it should be different. But thank you that you've told us to expect those things. Lord, help us to be faithful servants of yours that are here to follow you, to not build temples in your name, but to rather walk in obedience and faith and trust, sharing our faith with the people at the checkout stands in the supermarket and in the office by the coffee maker and the water cooler and on the phone as we talk with neighbors and friends. Lord, let us be lights for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.